All right, move a little furniture. Sorry about that. Well, here we are, Joshua chapter 7. We have been on a journey through Joshua for the past several weeks, and today we find ourselves in a precarious passage. Chapter number 7 is where we are. So we need to jump right in because it's a long passage. And again, it's a, one of these self-contained stories found in Joshua. And it just doesn't make any sense if we don't keep it all together. So if we have time to do anything at all today, it's time to read and hear God's Word, right? So let's look at Joshua chapter 7 beginning in verse number 1. The Bible tells us beginning in verse 1, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Now you remember, last week they sacked Jericho by miraculous intervention and God causing the walls to fall. And God did all of this. He said, there's only a couple of things I'm going to ask of you. And one of the things is you don't take anything. Stay away from it. It's all devoted to destruction. What's not devoted to destruction, we're going to take and we're going to put it in the temple treasury. So these things, a good way to look at these things that the Bible refers to as being under the ban, just think of them as being off limits. Don't touch it. One thing that God asks, don't touch it. They're off limits. Well, verse number 1 kind of gives us insight that Joshua didn't have. It's known as the reader's edge. We have some information in verse 1 that Joshua does not have starting in verse 2. So notice how verse number 1 concludes after giving us this edge that, that uh, Achan violated this one rule and he transgressed, took some of the stuff that was off limits. So here we go, looking at the end of verse number 1. The Bible says, Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua's perspective, verse number 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O oh Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them, and they have taken some of the things under the ban, and they have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they've also put them among their own things. Therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning then, 
you shall come near by tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come near by household. And the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the van shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah near and he took the family of the Zerites. And he brought the family of the Zerites near man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household near man by man and Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, was, uh, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to Him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel. And they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. My goodness, that's a heavy passage, is it not? And there is probably no passage that challenges us more both mentally and spiritually and emotionally than this passage. It's probably one of the most difficult passages for us to grasp in all the Old Testament. There have been many attempts made at it that have ended up in one ditch or the other. And it's interesting that when we have a passage of this magnitude that we really need to stay anchored to the core of what it is that the Spirit of God is emphasizing in this text. It's always interesting to me that the Lord puts some things in the text by the way of structure and the way of design to keep us in the center of the road. And you see, that's the way the Bible is. Hey, most people feel like Bible interpretation is just some mystical uh, way of setting the Bible on your head and praying that by osmosis, God's going to give you the meaning. And it's not that way. There are some time-proven, objective, and more scientific ways of understanding what the Bible says than that. And here in this passage, the Spirit in His kindness has given us a way to get to the heart of what this text means. So I'm going to have to put it up here on the board for you. That's why we were moving furniture. Because we must, no matter what we do in this difficult passage, we must understand, interpret, and apply it correctly, or boy, we're going to be in a mess. So how many of you remember our old friend, the chiasm? Y'all remember the chiasm? Well, those of you who need a memory refresher, here's what a chiasm is. It is a literary device employed by writers of uh, all types of literature, but especially in Hebrew narrative and Hebrew poetry, we have a lot of this literary device. 
And a literary device helps us to understand what it is that the writer himself emphasizes and what he wants us to understand as the takeaway and the main point. Here's what a lot of folk miss in Bible study. A lot of folk miss the fact that the structure of a passage is equally as important as the content of the passage. If we miss the structure and form, we are probably also going to miss the content. Hence, there's a lot of heretical ideas floating around simply because folk are doing this rather than employing solid methods of interpretation. So let's look at our chiasm. Let me write it on the board for you and you're going to see the pattern. I've tried to put this thing back enough so that everybody can get a view of it, but nonetheless, here we go. Let's start right up here and you'll see a pattern develop in just a minute. Look at verse number 1. The last statement says, The anger of the Lord burned. Underline that word. So here we go. Here's the way we start our chiasm. And I'm going to abbreviate the Lord with Y-H-W-H. That's simply the tetragrammaton. That's the way the Lord is written in Scripture. It's the covenant name for God, Yahweh. Don't be stressed out by any of this stuff. And listen to me, I'm simply doing this so you will understand why we interpret Scripture the way we do. Don't you go to straining your head trying to see chiasms in Scripture, because listen to me, until you've been working in the original languages of Scripture for probably about 10 or 12 years, it's going to be impossible to see chiasms unless somebody who has been working in them points it out to you. So when somebody points it out to you, you'll know exactly what's going on. So here we go. Yahweh. Notice what the Bible says. Yahweh's anger burned. Alright, that's verse 1 of the chiasm. Now let's look in verses 2 through 5. Here's what we have. We have... If you're writing this, you've got to write it just like this now or you're not going to understand it later when you go to back to study it. Offset this one. We have disaster for Israel. They went up to Ai and they got waxed. This is verses 2 through 5. Now in verses 6 through 10, we have the leaders before YHWH. Who is that? Verses 6 through 10. Uh, then in verse number 11 we have God's divine disclosure of the problem. Okay? That's verse number 11. Let me just stop and say, don't ask God what the problem is if you don't want Him to answer you, right? Have you ever done that? You ever ask God all spiritually and, and seriously, God, tell me what's wrong in my life? And after He gives you a grocery list, you say, Whoa, Lord, just a short list. Let's work on a short list. You ask Him and He'll let you know. So here we go. Disclosure of the problem. All right, now verse number 12, notice what we have. We have a forfeiture... of victory and YHWH presence. That's verse number 12. Alright? Now here's the nature of a chiasm. A chiasm walks us in and then it walks us right back out with parallel statements walking us out. So notice what we have now in verses 13 through 14. Um, verse uh, 14 through 13 we have, parallel with this statement, we have instructions for solution. Y'all with me? Alright, that's 13, excuse me, through 15. Do you see the way these two parallel one another? Problem, solution. So now we have leaders before Israel in verses 6 through 10. Guess who we have before Israel in verses 16 through 21? 
the entire nation of Israel. Israel is before Y-H-W-H. That's verses 16 through 21. All right? Now here's your two parallels. All right, now look at your next parallel, disaster for Israel. Now we have disaster for who? Achan. Exactly right. Y'all are getting it. And that is in verses 22 through 25. 22 through 25. Okay, now look at, look at number one. Yahweh's anger burned. What do we have as the parallel statement for that one in verse 26? What do you see in the text? Yahweh's anger. Look at it. Look at, look at your parallel statement in verse number 26. And the Lord turned the fierceness of His anger. So here we have Yahweh's anger turned. Verse number 26. Alright? Now look at this chiasm. Here we go. Here's the nature of a chiasm. It works us in and then it works us out. Now what is the heart of this text? You got it. Where is it at? It's found at the point of the spear, right? So the point of the spear is, the heart of this text is the forfeiture of victory and the forfeiture of Yahweh's presence. Let's look at it again. Look with me in verse number 12. This is God speaking. So this is divine speech. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They have turned their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. Now here's God speaking. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban. So here's the heart of this text. I've tried to sum it up in my title. Diagnosis, divine displeasure. Why was it that Israel had been defeated? It wasn't because as some expositors try to set forth that Joshua didn't pray before he sent his men up there. It wasn't because he was hasty and just sent them immediately on the heels of a victory. It wasn't because they were prideful. They just waxed Jericho with the presence of the Lord and they got a little prideful. It wasn't any of that. What does the text say was the reason for their failure? God's anger. And God's anger burned against them. Why? Because of their disobedience. So man, could this text explain some things for us or what? Could this text give us some insight into why the church in the United States of America is so lacking in victory? Could this text possibly give us a clue as to why so many churches today are absolutely without the Spirit of God? And here's the kicker, most of them don't even know it. They're going on with business as usual just as if He were there and He's not. Man, it really could. So let's let this chiasm kind of hold us to the center of the road because we don't want to get in one ditch of the other as we look at this subject of God's divine displeasure. Now, is it possible today for God to be displeased with His people? <laughs> well, let's let the text kind of answer that question as we work through it. But here's the way I want us to look at it. You know, I said up front that this text is one of the most complicated and one of the most difficult for us to understand. So I want to use this chiasm as a guide. Let's walk through it. Let's see why this text is such a challenge for us mentally and spiritually and emotionally. So here we go. We have difficulty with this passage, number one, because of cultural differences. You see, our culture and Bible culture are almost at opposite ends of cultural perspectives. The way we value things and the way the Bible culture value things and the way God values things are many times the exact opposite. That's why it is when somebody's saved, the sanctification process is mostly deprogramming us from being Americans in our mindset and in our culture. When we come to the text with an American cultural mindset, I can promise you we're going to be with, at odds with the text. 
Just understand that, that there is something that we have to overcome when we come to the Bible, and most of the time it's ourself. It's our own identity. So here we go. Why is it that we have these cultural differences? Well, because the Bible prioritizes the good for the community. As a matter of fact, look with me here in verse number 1. Notice what the Bible says. Notice the plurals in here, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. And look again at the end of, the, at the end of that uh, verse. The, 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 the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now what do you notice about the word sons of Israel? It's plural, is it not? But in actuality, how many people had transgressed the covenant and had taken stuff that was off limits? How many? One. It's exactly right. So here's what the Bible is introducing for us. It's introducing a concept known as corporate guilt. You may want to write it down because it will come in handy. Corporate guilt. And here's what corporate guilt means. Corporate guilt means God does not look at Israel as a nation of individuals. He looks at Israel or looked at Israel as an individual nation. Are you following me? The same way today, listen, this is some good ecclesiology for us and we need to take note of it. He does not look at Grace Church as a, as a body of individuals. He looks at Grace Church as, a, as an individual body. Man, y'all are getting this. So what does that mean? That means He deals with us collectively and He deals with, with us corporately. So notice again, let's go back to the text. Only one man had sinned, but who paid the price for it? The entire nation. You see, that's corporate guilt. If one does it, everybody's guilty. If one is guilty, everybody's guilty. Now hear me, this is right in line with the ecclesiology of the New Testament. And I'm telling you, this is why today, why so many churches live in defeat, and they live without the pleasure of the indwelling Spirit of God in their midst because they have not understood the collective identity of the church and that what one does affects everybody else. If one sins, we're all guilty. And if one sins, we all incur the same displeasure of God. Hey, can I just say this? I cannot underscore this enough. Listen to me. Everybody in this room, I'm preaching to myself, by the way. You know that, huh? If you're a member of Grace Church, don't think you're unimportant. You are not. I don't care who you are, what position you hold, uh, how little knowledge you have of the Bible, how big of a ministry you have, I don't care about any of that. Here's what matters. If you're a part of Grace Church, you are a part of this body. And what you do affects everybody else. What I do affects everybody else. We do not live in isolation as believers. We are a body. And have you ever noticed, man, the smallest member of your body can hurt and you're out of commission? Have you ever noticed that? If you don't believe it, pull off your shoe and bring your little toe up here and set it on this table. I got a hammer. I want to hit that thing. And let me see how you feel tomorrow. Oh, but it's just a little insignificant member. It's just a little toe. That don't matter. If I hit that thing just right, I promise you, you won't go to work tomorrow. Huh? Will you? And it's the same way with the church because of this idea of corporate guilt and also because the Lord looks at us and He deals culturally with us as a community, not a bunch of individuals. Man, are you your brother's keeper? You better believe you are. Is your brother's business your business? You better believe it is. Is my business your business and your business my business? You better believe it is. Because what we do as individuals affects this entire body. So notice, we have trouble understanding this because of the cultural differences. The Bible prioritizes the good of the community. But our American culture prioritizes the good of the individual. Huh? I mean, that's just the way it is in the United States. Now look, I'm not decrying, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I don't want to be American, but I'll say this to you. People who live in other places is like the Quilombolas of Brazil, 
the Bible plugs better into their culture than it does into ours. You know why? Because everybody in that village, Dane, is dependent upon everybody else for survival, right? And there can't be one wildcat who thinks he lives by himself. You need everybody else just in order to sustain life. But here in the United States of America, no, sir. We prioritize the individual even to the detriment of the group. I mean, if you don't believe it, just watch the news today and look at all the, the perverted minority ideologies that are given rights to do things that are absolutely destructive to the society as a whole. And it's because we prioritize the individual above the good of the community. And listen to me, this is not rocket science. You understand that can't happen very long before the nation is gone. I mean, that's just the way it is. We're just undermining ourselves. So notice, this is a difficult passage, number one, because of cultural differences between our culture and the Bible. But number two, it's difficult because of common deficiencies that we have. What do you mean common deficiencies? I mean common deficiencies. We have the same deficiency that old Aiken had. Did you know that? We really do. And because of it, this passage is difficult for us to understand. Do you realize sometimes what keeps us from understanding the Bible is our own sinful way of thinking? It just is. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy. So notice what I mean by common differences. Well, I'm talking about what we think. What we think. Now, how did Achan get here? How did the nation get here? And how did Achan get here in these two parallel statements? Well, I'll tell you how he got there. It was because of the way that he was thinking. And what's scary about it, it's the same way that you and I think today thousands of years later on this side of the cross in the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, how did Achan think he was going to get away with that? Well, he had to be thinking things like this. Nobody will know. He had to be thinking things like this. What I do is my business and my business alone. He had to be thinking things like this. My sin affects nobody else. Have you ever had those thoughts? Have you ever been down that road? Friend, that's a dangerous road. But you see, we have common deficiencies that link us more with Achan than we really like to know. And here he was thinking some things that were absolutely detrimental to him. And listen, if they were detrimental to him, boy, I'm telling you, they'll be detrimental to us as well. Here's what Achan had to be thinking. Well, God said don't take anything. But, you know, he's a God of grace. He won't mind if I take just a little. Huh? I mean, how many of these thoughts do we have in common with old brother Achan? Check out number next. Not only do we have common deficiencies in the way we think or what we think, but also in what we seek. What we seek. What was Achan seeking? Well, I promise you this. Old brother Achan's priority wasn't the exaltation of the God of Israel, was it? His priority wasn't on what's good for Israel. And I'm going to do whatever's good for the body, for the community. That wasn't his priority. Olakin had become selfish and here's what he was thinking. Or, or, or here, here's what he was seeking. He was seeking prosperity. Am I right? I mean, notice what the Bible says. Check this out in verse number 21. Here's Achan speaking. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekel in weight. You, you look at the exact description he gives of it. Awaken was so familiar with gold and silver until he could look at a bar and tell you how much it weighed. He! That tells me he'd been studying it. That tells me he had prioritized the almighty dollar. That tells me that he was seeking prosperity at the detriment of his spiritual health and the spiritual health of his nation and his brothers and sister, sisters Israel. Seeking prosperity. Now listen, this really wasn't a violation of the eighth covenant or the eighth commandment that says you shall not steal. This was a violation of the first, first commandment, which says. You shall have no other God above me. 
And son, I want to tell you, I, I, I'm, this scares me. This, that's why I tell you, this, this text, when you hold it in the middle of the road, it gets uncomfortably close to home. Because how much do you have to make in overtime on Sunday before you to sell God out? How much money would it take to buy you off of your commitment to the Lord? See what I'm saying? Now, don't get me wrong. Don't, don't leave here and say that Pastor Richie said anybody who works on Sunday is going to hell. That's not what I said. But I'm saying there's times when we just get priorities out of, out of line, don't we? And it's not just on Sunday. I mean, we get priorities out of line seven days a week. And we'll, we'll go for that dollar rather than obedience to the Lord and what's healthy and what's good for our church and for our community. So what was he seeking? Number one, he was seeking prosperity. But I think there's something else here he was seeking in this text. I think he was also seeking popularity. Look what the, look what the text says. The very first thing that caught his eye was a beautiful mantle. Some, 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 uh, some translations translate that as robe, as a beautiful robe. He even looked at it and he knew where it was from. You know why? Because this is what all the cool kids were wearing that day, huh? This is the name brand that you wore if you had Do-Re-Mi. I mean, this was the Abercrombie and Fitch of that day. And if you had that, you were a member of the cool kids club and everybody would like you. And old Lakin was thinking that what he put on the outside was going to cure the problem that he was battling on the inside. And by golly, it killed him, literally destroyed him. See, we have common deficiencies in the way we think and what we seek, but we also have common deficiencies in how we feel and how we feel. Now, you know how I feel about feelings. <laughs> huh? I mean, we ought not have them. If you do, rebuke yourself. <laughs> you know I'm just joking. But let me just, let me just throw this out there out there amidst you for a little while and, and see, if, see, if, see if, if you're honest with yourself and, and, and with us, it doesn't ring true. When you read this text and see that old Achan, poor old Achan, poor old Achan couldn't resist temptation and he took some of the stuff that God says was off limits. And in response to that, God said, you go get him, his wife, his children, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and everything else, and you totally destroy them. And after you have pummeled them to death with 10-pound stones, then you pour something on them and you light them on fire till every bit of them is consumed. Now, how many of you, when you read this text, thought, my God, that's harsh. The, 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 the penalty doesn't match the crime. Huh? I mean, that's normally where we end up. And you know why that is? Here it is. Because you and I relate more to Achan's view of sin than we do to God's view of sin. Hey, God doesn't look at sin the same way we do. Hey, God looks at sin and it's tough. Here's how Jesus looks at sin. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, go down to the nail salon and get you a manicure and a, and a palm massage. Is that what he said? No, you know what he said. What's he say? How serious is sin to Jesus? Now look, he's not saying literally that you ought to cut your hand off. He's using another literary device known as hyperbole, <laughs> hyperbole in order to exaggerate the seriousness of sin. Isn't that right? He says if your right eye leads you to sin, what should you do with it? You should do what? You should take your finger and gouge it into your eye socket, get down behind your eyeball, detach it from the optic nerve, and throw it on the sidewalk. Now, do we have that view of sin? Because that's how the Lord looks at sin. No, here's how we look at sin. Charles Spurgeon said our problem is we don't treat sin like it's a rattlesnake. We treat it like it's a powder puff. Huh? And because of it, it affects the way we feel and the way we look at text and we'll end up siding with Achan against God because of our culture and the way we feel. But there's something else I want you to put down here. Not only what we think, uh, how we feel, and what we're seeking, but let's put this down here, what we're hiding. 
what we're hiding. Because notice what the text says. Look what Achan says. Achan says, Behold, they are concealed, i.e., they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Hey, here's what Achan did. Here's what he hid in his heart. You know what he hid in his heart? Covetousness. Covetousness. And he thought it wouldn't hurt nobody. And lo and behold, it ended up costing his family their life. Ended up costing Israel because he was hiding something in their heart. This is what the psalmist says, and here's why he says it. Oh God, search me and know my heart today. See if there be some wicked way in me. And I promise you, you ask God that, and He's going to let you know exactly what it is so that you can get it out, so that we can get rid of it. Not only what was hidden in his heart, but hey, what was hidden in his house. (laughs) Here it is. You know, the main issue today is not the problems at the church house, but the problems in my house. Huh? And the problems in your house. What in the world do we have in our houses that God says is off limits? Y'all not be messing with it. And because of it, we're experiencing the severe consequences of God. The church is living in defeat without victory. And the church is living limping along without the presence of God. Hey, would you agree with me that, man, the church by far in the United States of America is not living in victory. I mean, we're just, we're just not, guys. I mean, we're not making any inroads against the onslaught found in liberal politics. We're not making any headway against what's being taught in public schools and perverting children, even in the first and second grade in preschool. We're not making any headway today against false religions that are thriving and multiplying in record-breaking fashion right here in the United States of America. It seems as if we've got our tail tucked between our legs and we are running from AI even though we ought not be. Just saying. Check out number next. We have difficulty with text because of the cultural differences. We have difficulties because of our common deficiencies. And we have difficulties because of the collateral damage. Collateral damage, what do you mean? Well, look what happened. It wasn't just Achan that was hurt. Look, down here is Achan. But first, who was it that was hurt? So here's what happens when we have things hidden. And when we begin to think and seek and act the way Achan acted, here's what happened. Number one, innocent men suffered. They didn't have a clue. Hey, now, let me, let me tamper that, temper that a little bit. Is there really any such thing as an innocent man? There's not. <laughs> Ain't none of us innocent. But here's what I'm saying. They were at least not guilty of the particular crime for which they paid, right? They died. Innocent people. That's collateral damage. Have you ever noticed when something goes down at the church who it is that's hurt? It's usually not the offender. It's usually collateral damage. People around. Check out number next. Collateral damage. Not only did innocent men suffer, but the spiritual mission stopped. The spiritual mission stopped dead in its tracks. Now here's what I mean by spiritual mission. When you begin to read the account of of Jericho, the way God describes it, God describes it more as a spiritual mission than He does a military encounter. It was all about getting these things and putting them in the treasury of God, doing this, doing that. So it's described more as a spiritual mission rather than a military encounter. And that's really what it was because God had given them the land and now they were taking the land, right? So as soon as they sin, i.e. one man, and the whole nation's held accountable for it, they go up to Ai, hey, look here, Jericho was a battle that they should not have won by all rights. Is that right? They shouldn't have won that. But they did. Why? Because the Almighty God was with them and He gave them the victory. Now we come to chapter 7, they go up to Ai, and Ai is a battle that they in no way should have lost. Am I right? And they got waxed. Why? Because God was not with them. You see, the conquest of the land was their mission. 
They were to move systematically through the land until Israel had occupied all of this space that he marks out in the Old Testament that's flowing with milk and honey. My goodness, the spiritual mission stopped dead in its tracks. And ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. God says in His words, in His word, that He has given us the nations. Has He not? Ask and I will give you the nations. And I'm telling you, it seems to me that the mission has almost come to a screeching halt. Let me tell you who's outrunning us. How about Islam? Fastest growing false religion on the planet. How about Mormonism? Jehovah's Witnesses taking the U.S. by storm. How about Hinduism? See, all of these things that are no match for the power of the gospel, and it looks to me like the mission has stopped and the church has got her tail between her legs running down the hills from Ai. Innocent men suffered, but the spiritual mission stopped. Hey, st- let, can we stop right there for a second and talk about this? When God's displeasure is upon a people, how does it show up? I think this text gives us insight. It doesn't show up in the economy of individuals in the church. Did you know that? You can still be prospering financially while the church is suffering spiritually. God's judgment and displeasure normally isn't seen in the lives of individuals. It's seen on the church collectively because of this idea of corporate guilt and the fact that He prioritizes the community, not individuals. So here's what will happen. We'll end up with a powerless church that can't take the gospel across the street, let alone around the world. My goodness. And it's not because the church has a bad reputation. It's because a bunch of us as individuals are living with God's displeasure upon our lives. Notice number next. Not only do we have difficulty with this because cultural deficiencies and uh, common deficiencies and cultural differences and collateral damage. But finally, verse 15 forward tells us that we have difficulty with this because of the costly directives. The costly directives. Hey, listen to me. Stepping out of God's will is very easy. Stepping back into it's another story. You see how easy it was for them to get God's displeasure upon their life? and upon the life of the nation of Israel. But how hard was it for them to get God's pleasure back on the nation? So it was costly. Did you see what God told them to do? Look with me in verse number 15. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Now let's just stop right there. Put yourself in the position of Israel. Here's what God says. God says basically, you got a choice. You can have Achan, or you can have me. But you can't have us both. Now look, Achan was not their enemy. Achan was a family member. He had been living with them. He had grown up with them. They'd raised children together. They'd been on vacation together. They eat supper together. They walk together. They talk together. They do all of this. This was Achan. And here's what God says. God says, if we can get this thing right, y'all got to handle old Achan. Now here's the only bright spot in it. Can Can I show you a bright spot? You about ready for one? Here's the bright spot. God's disclosure of the problem shows His desire for restoration. Isn't that cool? I mean, if God wouldn't have wanted to restore a nation to their place of victory and and, and His presence among them, He would have just been tight-lipped. He said, I ain't telling y'all what the problem is. Y'all figure it out on your own because I ain't talking with you no more. But that's not what he did. God begins to talk. And he says, this is what the problem is. Now, why does he do that? Because it's God's heart's desire for his folk to live in fellowship with him. 
And He'll let you know what the problem is. And it just shows His heart for restoration. But friend, that still doesn't minimize how costly the process of restoration was. Does it not? Awaken had to be dealt with. And He had to be dealt with by the group. The entire group had to deal with old Achan. So here's the deal. God's disclosure of the problem shows His desire for restoration. But Now let's put the shoe on the other foot. Our handling of the problem shows our desire for reconciliation. Huh? Can I be honest with you? Too many churches today see this as too costly. It's just too costly. Now look, thanks be unto the good God of heaven when one of us sin, the prescription isn't take him outside and stone him and burn him. Huh? That, that, that's not it no more. We're, that was a theophany. I mean, a, not a theophany, a theocracy. That was how Israel was, was under God. That's how they were put together. We are the church under grace. Thank God we're not going to get stoned or burned, right? But here's the deal. God still says, if there's somebody in your midst that's keeping you from having my pleasurable presence and keeping you from having victory, then you've got to deal with it. You've got to deal with it. You know, you know what it's referred to as? Church discipline. And too many churches today, look, there's churches on both sides. There's churches on both sides that will want to cut you off at the knees for the smallest infraction. That's not it. There's churches on the other side that you just do whatever you want to. It doesn't matter. You live in sin openly, making a shame of the name of Christ. That's fine. We're not going to do anything about it. But here's what the New Testament says. Here's what Paul says. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that old boy that was living with his father's wife? What did Paul say? Paul say, I don't worry about it. We're living in the era of grace. Don't worry about it. No, here's what Paul said. Paul said, turn him over to Satan. In other words, put him out of the church, put him completely in the realm of Satan so that Satan can destroy him so that his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord. You know what he said? Here's what Paul said about some more folk. He said, if there's any so-called brother that does this, don't associate with him. Get this. Don't even have lunch with him. And you see, that's just too costly for some of us. We just can't do it. Uh, here's what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2 talking to the church at Pergamon. He said, I have this against you that you are tolerating folk who teach false doctrine. And he said, you handle it or else I'm coming to you quickly. See what I'm saying? How we deal with the issue that's keeping us from moving forward in victory with the presence of God will demonstrate to God just what's important to us. What do we value? Do we value Achan more and our sin more? Or do we value his presence and victory more? You know, and here's the thing that as I read this text, it strikes me. Here was old Achan. And Achan knew what was going on, right? He was a part of the, the big meeting with, 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 with Israel. He was in this meeting. And he heard what God said. You know what I would have done if I would have heard what God said and I knew what I had hidden in my tent? Son, I would have fell on my face right then and said, Dear God in heaven, what have I done? Achan, don't he just sits there until the process starts. And, and get this. God takes the tribe of Judah. Whoop! Achan probably thinking, All right, just coincidence. No need for alarm here. Just coincidence. It won't happen again. I'm willing to play one more move. Well, next thing that happens... He takes his father's house. Oh, that's just too coincidental. It'll never come down to my family. You see what's happening? God's closing in. Closing in. Closing in. Closing in. And instead of Achan melting by seeing God's closing in on him, Achan just gets harder and harder and harder and harder until there's nobody left standing except Achan himself. And look what happened. And here's the bottom line. One man had to die for the good of the nation. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Because several thousand years later, there was an old high priest. The Lord Jesus was on trial. 
They were about to arrest him. And here's what that old high priest says. It's best that one man die rather than the entire nation suffer. Now he didn't realize how prophetic he was being. Because here's what happened. Achan was guilty. He had to die so that Israel could be victorious. Jesus Christ was perfectly innocent. He was the spotless Lamb of God, God incarnate, God in the flesh. Guilty of nothing. But ladies and gentlemen, He died for the good of all of God's people. Thanks be unto God, we'll never experience God's wrath if we are under the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. He paid the price for me. I deserve to be stoned, but I'm not going to because He was crucified in my place. I deserve to be burned in the devil's hell, but I'm not going to be because He's got the keys of heaven and hell and He let me out and now I'm one of His because He died for the good of His people. Thanks be unto God. Man, there's some parallels here and yes, sin is a serious thing in our heart and we better deal with it. If not, it's going to affect all of us. But thanks be unto God. We'll be disciplined, but we'll never be stoned and we'll never be burned because of what Jesus did and dying in my place and dying in your place. So here's the invitation. Have you ever been born again? Do you know that you know that what Jesus did on Calvary's cross has been credited to your account? When God looks at you, He no longer sees you as an object of His wrath because His wrath has been turned because of what Jesus did. Hey, have you ever prayed that prayer, God, show me what's wrong? And He does. But then you didn't do anything about it? My word in Jesus' name. Let's be a little bit different from Achan so that the pleasure of God will be on our church and on our lives. Here's the thing, Pastor Richie. I thought the New Testament said God never leave us, never forsake us. It does say that. But have you noticed I've been saying the pleasurable presence of God? Do you know that you can have the displeased presence of God in your midst? You can have the quenched spirit of God in your midst. You can have the grieved spirit of God in your midst. And I want to tell you, that's miserable. But boy, if we'll listen to Him, follow His instructions, follow the chiasm in, and by golly, follow it out. Grace Church will live in victory, enjoying the unhindered presence of God in our midst. Boy, that's where I want to live. God help me live in such a way that I don't hinder that from happening for you. God help us live in such a way that that don't hinder it from happening from us. In Jesus' name, let's deal with it. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. We read these texts. God, it makes us so happy, so grateful for the cross. God, at the same time, we realize that much of our lives is spent covering stuff up rather than confessing it. So I pray today in Jesus' name that in the quietness of where we stand, we'd do business with you and we'd get shed of some things that are detrimental, not just to us, but to the entire body. So God, would you hear the cries of your people as they call out to you during this response time? And God, in response, would you restore us to your presence, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? And God, would you allow us to see victory in the spiritual mission that you've set before us? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with